0: You are listening to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. Now in its 20th year, the Lumen Christi Institute enriches academic communities at the University of Chicago and across the nation with the wisdom of the Catholic intellectual and spiritual tradition. Today's interview is with Jerry Bradley, professor of law at the University of Notre Dame Law School. We sat down with Professor Bradley in South Bend to discuss his scholarship, legal training, and his thoughts on Catholic higher education.
1: Welcome to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. My name is Michael Bradley. I am the Institute's Communications and Events Coordinator. And today I am pleased to be sitting down with Gerard V. Bradley, a man whom I have known uh, quite well for most of my own life. Professor Bradley graduated from Cornell Law, summa cum laude, before working for several years in the trial division of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. He then moved to Champaign, Illinois to teach at the University of Illinois College of Law until 1992 when Professor Bradley moved to South Bend, Indiana to begin teaching at Notre Dame Law School, where he remains to this day. Professor Bradley, thanks for joining us today.
2: Happy to, Michael.
1: Let's begin by having you uh, share with us how it is that you decided to embark upon an academic career. You graduated from Cornell and went into prosecutor's work in New York, and then a few years later, you were at Champ- you were in Champaign teaching law courses. What was the What was the train of thought that led you to think that you wanted to leave, uh, for the most part, your work in the courtroom and go into the academy?
2: Well, I. Left my work in the courtroom, literally, but in a figurative sense, I did not, because one of the reasons I began teaching law, and I'm sure one of the reasons why Illinois Law School was interested in me, was my trial experience, and that I was recruited to teach law partly, just partly, to become a professor of trial advocacy. So I continued in a more mock setting working as a trial lawyer, actually, for about 28 years after I began teaching law. I switched full-time to other kinds of classes just about six or seven years ago. But as to your original question, or at least the main part of your question, I suppose if you had asked me during college about teaching law or teaching anything else, I would have demurred. I did not give it much thought at that time. But I think during law school, and during my three years in law school at Cornell, I also pursued but never did quite finish a master's degree in American political history. The thought occurred to me that my interest in intellectual life, and I would say more specifically in difficult but very important moral issues in constitutional law, perhaps chiefly abortion, but I began to think that engaging intellectually on the things that mattered to me and things that I uh, thought I had some, something to offer it did occur to me during law school. But my main interest during law school was the same from beginning to end. I had always had in mind working in the criminal justice system in New York City. It's where I was born and grew up and conditions in the criminal justice system in the late 1970s into the early 1980s. And this, that's the time period we're talking about now. We're very grim indeed. So it was always my determination to be in the criminal justice system. And although it was a possibility that I would become a criminal defense lawyer, for several reasons, the choice I made to be a prosecutor was one that suited me better than being a defense lawyer, and it suited me better in several respects. So I joined the Manhattan District Attorney's Office in 1980 upon graduation. And while I was there, if I had been asked, I probably would have said, well, I might end up teaching someday, but I'll keep doing this for the time being. But then after marrying and having our first child and further reflection upon my vocation, my wife and I decided that a change to an academic life would be a good one, good financially for that matter, but more in terms of lifestyle and satisfaction for me. Although I very much enjoyed trial work, I didn't much enjoy some of the other less satisfying aspects of criminal justice in what was then a system that was just strained to the breaking point. And I made the decision in 1983 with my wife to teach at Illinois. And Illinois wasn't in any particular way on our radar screen. We were very happy our nine years in Champaign, but it just turned out that that was the law school that showed the greatest interest in me and made the best offer. So that part of the story was, you might say, happenstance.
1: And so you've been at Notre Dame now for just over 25 years, 26 years teaching and doing research. Tell us about the kind of teaching that you do at Notre Dame, the sorts of courses you teach, and then also other responsibilities that you've taken up in the law school.
2: Well, I did teach trial skills for about 26 or 28 years. That is until about six or seven years ago. But all along the way, I have also taught constitutional law, various kinds of classes in constitutional law, basic classes, slightly more advanced classes, and from time to time, seminars. I have taught for the last several years a class on civil liberties. This would be a class offered to upper-class law students, second- and third-year students, and in which we, it's a survey class, so it takes up a number of, of particular Bill of Rights provisions. So we study freedom of religion, freedom of speech, including uh, regulation of obscenity, gender discrimination as a matter of constitutional law, race discrimination, all aspects of the so-called right to privacy, beginning with the Supreme Court's contraception case from 1965, a case called Griswold v. Connecticut. We study Roe v. Wade. We study the constitutional law governing regulation of abortion in the wake of Roe versus Wade. And for the last several years, I have taught same sex marriage. So this is a class called civil liberties in another semester, I will teach a class on constitutional criminal procedure. And this has to do with the police investigative methods, what or how the Constitution governs search and seizure the questioning of suspects and taking confessions from people accused of crimes, and also identification procedures of various sorts. I have taught for the last 20 years, every semester, a class on being a public defender. For me, it's not based precisely upon experience since I was never a defense lawyer, but it does draw upon my experience in the criminal justice system in New York. So in that class, what I do is organize and supervise and provide an academic component to second and third year students whose main job if you want to call it that during the class is to work at the elbow or shoulder to shoulder with uh, lawyers in south Bend who are working in the criminal justice system representing either adults accused of misdemeanor offenses or juveniles anyone under 18 and they may be people accused of crimes or accused of misconduct, which if the misconduct were committed by an adult would be a felony. So when our students work with juvenile offenders, they are liable to represent someone charged with being something as benign as being a truant or out after curfew, but they could also be representing somebody charged with something as malignant or as malign as being an armed robber.
1: Was it during this time at Notre Dame Also, that you began your association with the Natural Law Institute with the American Journal of Jurisprudence.
2: Correct. Uh, After I had been here about four or five years, the law school instigated a change in leadership of the Natural Law Institute as well as the editor's positions of the American Journal of Jurisprudence. The American Journal of Jurisprudence, which at one time was known as the Natural Law Forum, you might say is the activity or the main activity, it's a publication of the Natural Law Institute. And in around 1996 or 1997, I and my colleague, John Finnis, who is a legal philosopher of high renown, done pathbreaking work on natural law theory, and who has, since 1994, worked part-time on our faculty and until he retired from his chair at Oxford several years ago, part-time on the Oxford faculty, but the law school instigated a change of leadership so that Professor Finnis and I became co-directors of the Natural Law Institute and also co editors in chief of the American Journal Jurisprudence.
1: And was it also during this time your tenure at Notre Dame that you first met the Lumen Christi Institute's director, Thomas Levergood,
2: I did. I first met Thomas. Now it must be almost twenty years ago, perhaps eighteen years ago. It's possible I met him you know very briefly and shook hands. At some event before that, perhaps in Chicago, perhaps in an event organized by Cardinal George, to whom, of course, Thomas was very close. And I had the privilege of working with somewhat closely from time to time. Uh, But I do remember very specifically meeting Thomas at the Ave Maria Law School in Ann Arbor, Michigan, when he, that is Thomas, accompanied Cardinal George on a trip to give a speech, I think it was in March of the year 2001, when Cardinal George gave the inaugural speech or a speech dedicating the Ave Maria Law School in Ann Arbor and Thomas was along for the ride. And at that time I had a chance to actually get to, to meet him and to talk to him for a while. And since then I've had uh, you know, regular, that is recurring contact with Thomas and the Lumen Christi Institute whose work from this distance of about 90 or so miles I have admired for these last 20 years or so and have come to, I think, value even more highly as time goes by, and not to anticipate something we might talk about later on, but I do think that in today's particular configuration of institutions and operations dedicated to Catholic higher education, or to the higher education of Catholics, the slightly off-campus, independent institute or think tank of which i think lumen Christi is a prototype is destined to play a larger and larger role in the higher education of america's catholics and i think at least this much for sure ought to play a larger role as we go forward in this particular circumstance of a set of factors affecting the viability quality and frankly the catholicity of other offerings in Catholic higher education.
1: And we will talk about those circumstances presently. For now, though, let me ask you about your current scholarship. Are you working on book projects? Uh, If so, what is their nature? Does it connect into your research? What sorts of things are you working on when you're not teaching?
2: Well, I have, it seems like I always have one or two uh, short term and manageably sized projects, whether it's a lecture, or a book review an essay, or perhaps a short scholarly article that happens to come due, and I have a few of those in front of me this fall. But my main scholarly preoccupations right now are two. I and my co-editor, Christian Brueger. Christian Brueger is a very accomplished moral theologian, and he and I undertook about three years ago to invite about 21 or 22 scholars, as it turns out, to contribute chapter length treatments of particular topics in catholic social teaching so we have now about a 700 page manuscript on catholic social teaching there are about 24 chapters with 20 or 21 authors it is under contract to cambridge university press Uh, it is a scholarly work it's meant to be accessible to the intelligent general reader but i would say it would be demanding for the intelligent general reader and given the way things are priced today it might be out of the price range of the intelligent general reader but nonetheless it's a very substantial scholarly not survey it's a survey in, the, in respect of its treatment of the subject being nearly exhaustive but it's not a survey in the sense of being a relatively speaking superficial treatment so accomplished authors have taken up at our request All of the popes since Pope Leo inaugurated, you might say, Catholic social teaching with Rerum Novarum. So each of the Holy Fathers since then is a subject of a chapter. Each of the main papal teaching documents, starting with Rerum Novarum, is a subject of a chapter. There are select topics that are subjects of chapters. And by topics, I mean perennial focal points of Catholic social teaching, such as subsidiarity, the common good, the universal destination of all goods and a couple or three chapters are focused upon treatments of catholic teaching on capitalism socialism and communism there are a couple of synthetic chapters one by myself about how bishops should teach catholic social thought or catholic social doctrine one by john Finnis, which he we call a radical critique of catholic social teaching there's one by Finnis on Thomistic Antecedents of the Modern Corpus of Social Teaching, a paper by Tom Baer of the University of Houston on 19th century antecedents of the late 19th century and thereafter teaching. And then I have a chapter, which I'm not sure if I'd say it's synthetic, but it's a bit of an outlier in terms of its precise focal point. It is about the social teaching of the American bishops between Vatican I and Vatican II. And as I say, we're in the final stages of preparing the manuscript for submission to Cambridge, given the size of it and how difficult or at least how labor intensive it will be to edit it. It probably won't appear in print until late next year, and that would be 2019.
1: And you said that this CST book project was one of two primary scholarly uh, points of interest for you. What is the second
2: The second is a book, which is really meant for the general reader with a certain amount of intelligence, but also willingness to engage with the topic of social response to pornography. So it's about, you might say, regulating pornography for a variety of reasons, which I'll lay out in the first chapter, or perhaps the first two chapters. I think that our, our society, this is probably true of many other societies in the world, if not all, at least most of the North Atlantic democracies are probably in the same condition that America is, but the book is about America and about the American social response to pornography. I say regulate with a little bit of hesitation because the thesis of the book is not that the law ought to ban pornography, and it's not a book about legal censorship. I do think that there is a, and this is part of my thesis, a strategic an essential but nonetheless secondary role for the civil law to play in a proper response to pornography where the, the response is mainly to use the law, public opinion, other sources of cultural norms, if you will, to generate and sustain a very sharp social and cultural stigma on pornography. So that although it, it ought to be legally prohibited to traffic and obscenity, Certainly, child obscenity should be prohibited, even possessing it. It's not so much that I'm calling for legal reform or relaxation of the present laws. But I do think that in an internet world, our world, even the meaning of the question about what it would mean to say we ought to ban pornography is a little bit difficult to ascertain. So I don't think there's any other way to generate the adverse, really strikingly negative social judgment on pornography that our society needs in the digitalized world, save to generate a sharp social stigma so that it would be perhaps easiest to compare it to the social stigma upon uh, smoking, racist and sexist speech. Things that one can do and some people do do, but when it becomes publicly known, just for example, with regard to racist and sexist speech, when it becomes publicly known that one is used an epithet for a particular racial group, well, then one is stigmatized and one has to expect, not prosecution, but really uh, unpleasant social repercussions. So that I think in tobacco, smoking, you might say, is lawful. Uh, the government discourages it, certainly requires those who sell tobacco products to disclose fully the dangers of using tobacco. And you might say smoking is marginalized in the culture, not only physically, because you can't smoke inside and people don't smoke in other person's houses, at least without asking permission. Um, And smoking is annoying to persons around or experiencing secondhand smoke. And the social and cultural context is such that one can express, frankly, one's opposition to smoking. So in that sense, it's marginalized. I think that's the way that a society which is, Unfortunately, a wash in digitalized pornography will have to proceed. And this will be a book, more modest proportions than the Catholic Social Teaching book, probably a book of 60,000 words and meant to be priced for popular consumption. And that I will take up in earnest after this manuscript on Catholic Social Teaching is finally completed, although I have in the last year or so published a couple or three articles on regulating pornography and they're available for persons who wish to get an idea of what i might say in this book
1: a good deal of your professional work has occurred at the intersection it seems of the life of the church at least the life of the church in america and the and the academy one role in which you've pursued this kind of thinking this kind of scholarship is through the fellowship of catholic scholars of which you were the president i understand for for many years So why don't you tell us about the fellowship, about your role as president and also tell us about a very interesting essay that you published in the FCS quarterly just a few weeks ago on the present state of and the future of Catholic higher education in America. This might be a fitting occasion to dig a little bit more deeply into some of the remarks that you made earlier about the landscape of Catholic higher education today. The ways in which you think it might change in the next, say, 20 years or so, the kinds of challenges that Catholic higher education in America today is dealing with?
2: Well, the Fellowship of Catholic Scholars was a group of scholars, uh, almost all of them in academic positions, but, but perhaps not quite all of them. A group of 30 or so scholars in 1977 and 78 decided to band together and put their academic and intellectual gifts at the service of the church and engage the wider intellectual world, including the wider Catholic intellectual world, but engage intellectual world from a perspective of faithful Catholicism. You might, you might call it Orthodox Catholicism, but this was during a time, again, 1977, 78, when the Catholic intellectual world was um, especially conflicted There were very, very sharp debates within it about sexual morality, about liturgy, about Catholic social teaching, about seminary formation during a time when I think it's, well, I think it's fair to say this myself, but I can say with certainty that the perception or judgment of those who founded the fellowship, their judgment was that the the American hierarchy was itself conflicted And divided over the same sorts of issues so that there was a lively, not only controversy, but fight, I think, within the hierarchy. And they meant to enter into this situation and put their gifts at the service of the church, the service of the magisterium, and to try to sort of evangelize the Catholic intellectual world. Many of those founders have passed away, but among them is the late Germain Grisey. Other founders were George Anthony Kelly, a monsignor from New York, who was then teaching at St. John's, Ronald Lawler, a moral theologian of the highest rank, uh, has passed away. Now, those who are still living would include Joseph Fessio, the publisher of Ignatius Press, Uh, Mother Assumpter Long, who then must have been a rather young sister, Dominican sister, but now is the mother superior of the sisters in Ann Arbor. And a few others have survived. Jim Hitchcock, who's a retired historian from St. Louis University. But the fellowship committed being at those years has remained international group of Catholic scholars dedicated to the magisterium, never numbering in membership more than 1,200, probably now numbering more like 700. I was the president for many years in the 1990s into the early 21st century. And it so happens, as you mentioned, that I prepared a paper on Catholic higher education in America in 2018, that is 2018 and looking forward, it was uh, instigated by an invitation from Dr. Stephen Creason, who's a professor of political science at the Franciscan University at Steubenville, for a conference that he organized and that took place in April of 2018. So that was my assigned or at least negotiated topic. By having taken up that assignment and delivering that paper and receiving valuable feedback from the people at the conference i refined the paper and then submitted it for publication to the quarterly publication of the fellowship and it is a paper on the basically the the present state and future possibilities for catholic higher education in america
1: and what are some of the challenges that you describe in that paper and Briefly, can you summarize some of the directions in which you think the solution to those challenges can be found?
2: Well, I think the, the fundamental challenge to Catholic higher education is that there's a very limited demand for it, I think, among high school students and their parents. If there were much greater demand, that is to say, if there were a larger number of 17-, 18-year-old, 19-year-old people and parents of those people who wanted a contemporary education to be sure and could well be people looking to be trained to be nurses technicians businessmen lawyers Uh, so it's not that i'm talking mainly about a a, a sort of antique or even boutique approach to catholic education where the select group of cognoscenti for example or to use one phrase would study just the ancient texts and almost nothing else. I'm talking about contemporary education, even with vocational future in view, but in an environment which nonetheless mediated to young adults, the Catholic faith and the Catholic intellectual tradition. My observation is that there's a very limited demand for it. If there were a greater demand, there would be more suppliers. Uh, I think it's that simple. So the fundamental problem about Catholic higher education, I think, is right now identifying or developing or cultivating ways to stimulate demand. Now, about that, I only have a few not tentative thoughts. I think they're firm thoughts, but they're about small ways to improve that demand. But I think reflective of the demand, limited demand, more than anything else, is the present state of Catholic higher education, which I would describe as as at best poor that is to say, of the 225 or so institutions of higher education listed in the official Catholic directory, I think we persons could argue about which small number of institutions could and should be regarded as authentically and fully and committedly Catholic. But I don't think there'd be much disagreement that that number is small, that the number of institutions that could be recommended as profoundly Catholic is no more than a couple of score and perhaps fewer than that. And I think most of the other institutions are basically reacting to market demand and have watered down their Catholicity to suit the tastes and inclinations of their clientele. I think that's a great challenge and difficulty. I think the this is true of both the Catholic college, you might call it the Catholic teaching college, you might call it the Catholic liberal arts college, as well as the Catholic research university. But for what it's worth, my own judgment is that in our society, given the enormous resources that must be commanded to operate a research university and the extraordinary diversity of stakeholding groups in a modern research university, faculty, graduate students, donors, prospective undergraduate students, government contracts for research purposes, administrators. I think that the the confluence of factors affecting the viable research university make it extremely unlikely that a research university can be much more than nominally Catholic. And there are nominally Catholic research universities. And there are some that are more than nominally Catholic. But I think that it's very, very difficult for a research university to be profoundly Catholic. And I think that The best evidence for that is the scarcity of such places that the that in any kind of hypothetical conversation about which institutions of higher education are genuinely, authentically, profoundly and ambitiously Catholic, the argument would be about smaller institutions, about colleges, and probably there about colleges, which are not necessarily mainly liberal arts colleges but in which there is a very strong liberal arts curriculum alongside and perhaps surrounding more vocationally specific curricula, whether it's nursing, education, various forms of physical therapy, business, what have you. But I do think that the schools that have maintained their Catholic character in a visible, even conspicuous and profound way are colleges. But there aren't that many of those either. And I think that reflects the very limited demand in the market. And I'd say one more thing. I think that these institutions, because they're not research universities, they don't have government contracts or have very few of them. They have very modest endowments. They're all pretty much tuition driven institutions. They're always in danger at the end of the fiscal year of being in red ink rather than black ink, living on the edge financially. So that makes their challenge all the greater to do what they can to be both profoundly Catholic, but nevertheless to pay the bills. And I think these institutions are in a particularly unenviable market position because, as I say, there's a limited pool of college applicants that's interested, who are interested in this kind of education. And I think these students and their families are keenly interested in getting the most affordable Catholic higher education they can. So I think they quite understandably, but from the college's point of view and from the college's accountant's point of view, it is regrettable that the limited pool of applicants are in a position to bargain with these colleges for tuition discounts by playing one off the others. I don't blame anybody for doing that, but that aggravates the already precarious financial condition of this limited number of Catholic colleges. So the future, I think, To put it in a nutshell and to refer back to my comments earlier about Lumen Christi, I do think because the research universities are proving to be unviable as Catholic institutions, and that the number of very good Catholic colleges is for the foreseeable future going to remain very limited. I think a big part of the solution to the problem of Catholic higher education in the near future and the intermediate future, for sure, and possibly indefinitely is the Lumen Christi prototype, that is to bring a profound introduction and even more than an introduction, a profound apprenticeship in the Catholic faith and Catholic teaching to the secular campuses, make it available largely on a non-credit basis, but not necessarily entirely on a non-credit basis, but to plant next to, in the case of Lumen Christi, the University of Chicago. And there are any number of other institutions, institutes and centers of excellence near leading secular universities where the Catholics, and others for that matter, but mainly the Catholics who attend these institutions can get more than a little of a genuine Catholic higher education on the side. Well, we
1: commend to our listeners, many of whom, of course, by virtue of following Lumen Christi's work and mission, are interested in these questions. We commend your article to them, Fellowship of Catholic Scholars. Quarterly, it probably can be found online and perhaps downloaded for free. Professor Gerard V. Bradley of Notre Dame Law School. Thanks for joining us this morning.
2: You're welcome, Michael.
0: Thank you for listening to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. To access more resources, please visit our website and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The music for this episode, Sequence for St. Hilarion, is recorded by the Lumen Christi Institute Artists in Residence Scola Antiqua of Chicago, on their CD, West Meets East, Sacred Music from the Torino Codex.